You're tuned in to Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service Radio. This episode of Lunch Agenda is sponsored by Brian Smith of Compass Real Estate. Brian helped me buy my house five years ago and wanted to support Lunch Agenda just like he supports so many of Washington's greatest causes. I encourage you to check him out at compass.com if you're ready to look at houses in D.C. He is the best, and I'm happy to tell you all about him. Hey everyone, welcome to Lunch Agenda on Full Service Radio. We're broadcasting live from the lobby of the Line Hotel in D.C., and I'm your host, Kiko Bourne. Lunch Agenda is a podcast that schools you on parts of the food system that are less often covered than restaurants and celebrity chefs. You can check out past interviews with D.C.-based leaders like Ona Balkis and Michael Twitty, and with national food advocates like Mark Bittman, Leah Penniman, and Julia Tertian. All those interviews are on your favorite podcast app, and behind-the-scenes info and pictures are at kikosfoodnews.com or kikobuff on Instagram. We've come to the last episode in our Lunch Agenda Investing in Food series, which is made possible through a partnership with the Bainham Family Foundation. Over the past 50 years, Bainham has worked to improve the quality and availability of resources for children living in poverty to help them thrive. And in recent years, Bainham has become a dynamic funder of food-based initiatives in the Washington region, recognizing that access to nourishing food during childhood impacts health and learning outcomes later in life. This series has explored the who's who of food investing. We've looked at how government, philanthropic, for-profit, and nonprofit groups are using impact investment to fix systemic gaps in our food system. And last week, we discussed how funder-supported market-based solutions can help people on their journey from relying on emergency food to exercising full agency as a paying retail customer. So if you're an investor looking to drive equity through your funding decisions, today's episode is for you. We're going to be talking about the problem of inequitable ownership and participation in food system decisions. And we'll look at how access to capital by minorities and women is a crucial foundation for community food sovereignty. I'm looking forward to speaking today with Dennis Derrick, founder and president of Corbin Hill Food Project, about how he's structured that nonprofit around equitable ownership and participation. Then Olivia Rebinal, Director of Inclusive Food Systems at Capital Impact Partners, will share her perspectives as a funder who has worked to break down barriers for those traditionally left out of food investment so they can equally access the funds on the table. I hope to leave you with practical tips to ensure your investments drive forward food sovereignty or to identify funders who align with your values in this way. Because we know our food system needs to be informed by and meet the needs of all people, yet today's guests will explain that that isn't quite happening yet. Before I bring Dennis and Olivia into the conversation, though, let's catch up on the week in food system headlines with a little Kiko's Food News. Headline one. So here's a cool marketing tactic with impact. In a printed New York Times ad, the founders of Cliff Bar issued an invitation to the CEO of Kind Bar with a challenge to go organic. The letter was really well written, and I'm just going to read from it. Quote, to make it easier, we at Cliff Bar will help you. We know how strange this offer sounds coming from a competitor, but more than ever, we believe that making the world better means making it organic. In 2003, we broke with conventional business wisdom and decided to take what initially seemed to be a huge risk. The investment required more people, time, and money. Despite these challenges, those challenges, this year we celebrated the purchase of our billionth pound of organic ingredients and continue our relentless quest to move from our current 76% organic ingredients to 100%. If Cliff Bar and Kind, the two largest nutrition bar companies in the country, join hands, the impact would be that much more powerful. And if we then got RX Bar from Kellogg's, Lara Bar from General Mills, and all the other non-organic brands to go organic, the benefits to people and planet would be exponential. Maybe a move to organic would even inspire your part owner, Mars, to take its entire line of candy organic, end quote. There, the Cliff 
founders are calling it open source organic. I think it's a pretty cool way to draw attention to who is and who isn't sourcing that way. Second headline of the day. Both, the next two headlines both being seafood related. In China, the sea cucumber is considered a delicacy, and it's an important ingredient in traditional Chinese medicine where it's used to treat arthritis and improve sexual health. But it turns out that beyond that, these little guys are playing a starring role in the race to blockchain technology. Because sea cucumbers are so expensive, fakes are a big problem. And international crime syndicates make millions from smuggling them. So the use of blockchain and sea cucumber production helps mitigate counterfeit risk and bolsters food safety. The blockchain tracks where the sea creature came from, where it was raised, fished, and produced, and that eventually provides transparency to buyers. Random, but I just think so fascinating. Finally, the global appetite for octopus is growing, whether it's in Japan for fried takoyaki balls, Spain's simmered whole octopus, or in America, the increasingly popular poke craze. But stocks of squid and octopus are in serious decline in the wild, so seafood businesses are racing to industrialize octopus farming. This may come with stark environmental consequences, according to a new analysis showing how octopus aquaculture will increase pressures on wild fisheries. Like most seafood, octopuses are carnivores, which need to consume other aquatic animals in order to sustain. So octopus farming, if successful, may leave wild octopus populations untouched, but would still exacerbate the depletion of many other fish used for feed a factor that many of us don't consider when thinking about the benefits of aqua farming, the same being true for salmon or shrimp farming. We're going to take a quick break to share a bit of information about an online tool for food education and job training that was just released by the Bainham Family Foundation. So stay tuned and we'll be right back. Hey, food people. Have you heard about the Food Learning Locator? Brought to you by the Bainham Family Foundation, it's a free online resource for exploring more than 100 food-related education and job training programs across the D.C. metro area. Whether you're looking for job training in the food industry, help growing your garden, or classes on food and nutrition, you can find it on the Food Learning Locator. And if your organization runs food-related programs, you'll want to be featured on this innovative interactive tool. Explore the map and learn more at foodlearninglocator.org. Welcome back, everyone. This is Kiko. You're tuned into Lunch Agenda, and you've joined us on Full Service Radio. In this final episode in Lunch Agenda's Investing in Food series, we're going to explore food sovereignty and why that concept is important to building a democratic and sustainable food system. I'm really excited today to interview someone who I've had the pleasure of hearing present about his unique approach to creating a food nonprofit anchored in community participation. And he's joining us via phone because he's based in New York. Dennis Derrick founded the Corbin Hill Food Project in 2010. His social venture serves as a crucial middleman for fruits and vegetables grown in the farm towns of upstate New York and trucked to the South Bronx, Washington Heights, and Harlem. Dennis is also a professor of professional practice at the New School for Public Engagement. He has over 30 years' experience in both research and executive management positions, and he's been involved in three successful startups. Welcome, Dennis. Thank you, Kiko. So, Dennis, you talk about, when you're talking about Corbin Hill, you talk about shareholders with a capital S who buy your produce. Who are your shareholders, and what are their barriers to achieving food sovereignty? Well, we consider all our shareholders as those who participate in our, what we call our farm share program on a weekly basis, on an individual basis. And then we also consider our shareholders as the institutions that we target who serve lower-income individuals or, or individuals with special needs as part of our shareholders, and that the institutions represent uh, the, the groups that they serve as shareholders. And can you tell us about how Corbin Hill provides fresh food in a way that, that really drives forward your vision of sovereignty, leveraging these buyers and these institutions? Well, I think the first thing that you start with is just in terms of uh, when we started, we actually turned to the community to define what it is they wanted and how they want it designed, what they were willing to pay. And basically, they framed the entire program 
from a design perspective. And in that regard, when we started, you must remember this, when we started the 11 of us as investors, none of us knew anything about farming. Uh, we soon discovered that uh, farming is not exactly as easy as most people would think. Gardening is, but not farming. Uh, and so what we did then was we made an alliance with, the, with four farmers up there, upstate at that particular point in time, who essentially had no access to markets in the Bronx or Harlem or New York City. They were small enough that coming to the city to set up a CSA or to do any such, uh, to market their goods was not possible. So that, that, that arrangement, the first year with four farmers, the second year with nine farmers, there was some skepticism. You know, who are these uh, folks, of, these black folks coming up here talking about farming? They don't know how to farm. Are they going to pay us in time, et cetera, et cetera. But by the third year, and the, let's say by the fourth year, we had 42 farmers who signed up with us. So we had quite an array of, uh, of, of produce that was available to us for many of the farmers who never ever marketed any of their produce in the city. And, and can you give a, a, a bit of an illustration about who those institutions are that you connect them with? Uh, because I think that you know, distribution is a piece of the food chain that gets less attention than consumer-facing retail and even farming. And, and over your years of operation, you've really honed your reason for being to focus on last mile delivery, um, you know, connecting distribution to senior centers and daycare centers and the like. How have you tapped into the power of these kinds of buyers when it's not financially preferable for big trucks to be, you know, stopping in somewhere that won't be able to place a certain minimum order? Well, I think one of the things that we try to do in the last mile delivery is understand the nature of what that problem is and how it gets defined. You know, all these definitions of, of issues, for instance, we can talk about last mile delivery for Amazon. It's not the same when we talk about last mile delivery for small institutions. Great point. For very small, in, uh, for very small institutions, there are minimum orders they have to pay. And for instance, if, they, if their order doesn't fit $250 to $350, there's a surcharge that all these deliverers charge them, $75 surcharge. At that particular point with a $75 surcharge, the food is too costly and then it's not really accessible. So what we have begun to do is to aggregate these small orders, begin to put together a community-owned uh, set of assets from refrigeration, to vans, uh, to space for sorting, and so forth, uh, such that we can now aggregate orders from maybe half a dozen places within a four-mile radius and reduce the minimum order from 250 to 350 to $150. When, once we aggregate the goods at a particular site, we can then send vehicles out to make that delivery within that four-mile radius. And how is that work, the approach to reaching your ultimate vision of food sovereignty? You know, oh, what, well, what does food sovereignty look like? What has, what has been achieved through the work when you get there? And what, how do you define it? Well, let's put it this way. It, it permeates almost all of the work that we do. From the very beginning when we bought land, which at that time, 10 years ago, uh, was unthought of, why would you start a project by buying farmland? And for us, from day one, we always said, we're not quite sure if we could probably get to the scale that we wanted to, but this land needed to really be turned over to the community and the community own it. So that we've always talked about shareholders with a capital S with the intent from day one that they would own this property and they would decide essentially how they would like to use it and make the decisions about its use, okay? So that's number one. The second thing about sovereignty really has to do with the fact that we were building in what I would call uh, choices for people at the very beginning so that they controlled what they got. So that, for instance, they could join any time, which was a contradiction to what CSAs were doing. They could pay in any form that they wanted. They needed to pay only one week in advance. They can sign up any time that they wanted, uh, and they can rejoin any time in the summer. 
so that it was not a punitive kind of process, what I call uh, poverty governance that, that we were working with. We were actually building in from the very inception the fact that people could make decisions about how they spent their limited dollars and when they spent it. The other way that we also talk about it in terms of sovereignty and the institutions is initially we had a really good, great set of guidance from folks listening to folks in the South Bronx. And then we discovered that we, we used the theory of saying that we don't live in one community, that there are many communities within our community, so that each and every institution that we work with, we see them as really rather than unique. They may have the same racial composition and they may still have some, many of the characteristics of, of low income and so forth, but the needs of the group that they serve were particularly unique. And so we were able to design on an individual basis the fact that each institution can make its decisions about how they wanted their food to be delivered, the amount of money they could spend, uh, and the choices they would like. Such that, you know, for seniors, we do $8 a week every other week. For, for, for one group called SEO Family Services, we do 400 uh, parents for Head Start once a month. And they, get, they, they pay $20 a share. And so everything is, everything is flexible and variable. And I think what we're really trying to do is to make sure that all those decisions are not subject to one design that, quote, Corbin Hill thinks is best for you. You tell us what's best for us, for you, and we will try to deliver it. How unusual is it that an organization is being that flexible and that differentiated? I mean, is that operationally extremely challenging or, or have you figured out a way to make that flexibility sustainable? Well, uh, it is challenging, let's be honest. For instance, many of the tools that were designed for ordering and so forth were never designed for low-income folks or for projects like ours that were essentially too flexible. They were designed for CSAs and people made their orders, et cetera, and they got what they wanted and so forth. And they had their credit cards and so We have had in the last year or so to build new platforms uh, to get away from the traditional platforms that is now making it easier. Whereas previously, a year ago, it would take us something like 45 minutes to put in a single order now it takes us about 20 minutes to do an order. And so we're saving an enormous amount of time, much more efficient as we get our new platforms up. That's great. That's great. And I know that, you know, in addition to frequency of order and time of year of order, you do ask your, your um, shareholders about, you know, food that they want in terms of what's culturally appropriate. Um, and I know that you've solicited input in terms of you know, what, what crops they want the farmers to grow and, you know, going through seed catalogs, what, what would they order? Can you give us any, any um, insights into what you've done based on that information, what you've changed? Well, <clears throat> what has happened now is we've moved away from just the model of working with the 42 farmers to working with essentially four different hubs that now give us an opportunity to actually draw from 300 plus farms. This has given us an enormous range of things that we can order. However, one of the things you will find consistent as a consistent challenge is many of the farmers don't really know anything about cultural food and don't grow it. Uh, a good example, I mean, say 10 years ago when we asked for collard greens, we couldn't get them from farmers. We had to actually spend a couple of years telling them, this is what we want, a simple thing like collard greens. Everybody was into kale then, so that's what they essentially were telling us, why don't you take kale? We said, we'll take kale, but we also would like some collard greens. But it's a question of talking to farmers and asking them what they want. We wanted okros. The farmers grew it, and it did not succeed. They were unsuccessful in growing it. So that it's a two-way process, things that we can ask for and things that uh, they can grow. Uh, what we think the new model will be is actually building cooperatives around many of the urban farmers in a city where you have one third of the, of the residents in the city are uh, foreign born. And so they bring their own culture to them in their backyards and how we aggregate and put together what I would call, for instance, a Kalaloo co-op or an okra co-op or whatever it is that they may be growing and so that they can own it and be able to build their own wealth and, and business around it.
Interesting. And Dennis, one of the things that I was moved by when I heard you present at Busboys and Poets last year here in D.C. is that you said one thing that I don't have to do in my work is organize my shareholders. You said they're already organized. What do you mean by that? Well, when we started, we basically tried to do everything. In other words, we would try to we would hire someone for, for uh, to run the distribution site, and we would be doing all of the technical work and the orders. What we have found, and this is really interesting, what we have found is those who live in a community know the community better than anyone else who comes into that community, even if that person is the same color. It's really interesting. Because we make these wonderful assumptions. Well, if you're, if you're a black person, you move into a black community. Yes, there's a certain amount of knowledge you bring to the community. But if I hire someone in that neighborhood who absolutely knows that neighborhood, here's the kind of question I get when, I, when we do that. Someone said to us, are you sure you have enough produce if I'm running this stuff? Because I know everybody in the neighborhood, and I'm going to get them all to sign up. And that's a different question than when you just hire someone who goes into that community and has to learn it, develop trust, so forth. So in that sense, uh, they are now running the whole thing. What we do provide is technical assistance to, to each of those folks who are running these sites. We're finding this true for the institutional uh, sites that we have where we have our farm share, and we're finding this true, also true for the neighborhood sites. And we're also finding this true, which is very important in terms of co-creating value, that the nonprofits are picking up the, the slack and saying, we will do X, Y, and Z. That's helpful. That's helpful. That makes sense. I want to I wanna talk about how you fund this work because, you know, <laughs> we, are, we are in this series about investment in food. And, um, you know, I, I'd like to hear about your approach to using financial research, resources, which you did talk about a bit when you were here last. So first of all, I know Corbin Hill seeks grant funding and, and that you use that to offer your standard farm share prices of 15 and $28, or at least that's, I think, what, you, what, you, what their price is as of now. And that without this grant, you say that the true cost of the farm share would be 30 or 40% higher. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. Um, uh, but beyond that grant funding, I, I know that you've rolled out a social impact share too, which is really interesting where you're inviting shareholders with greater means to pay a little bit more to make it possible for you to offer a subsidized lower price share to lower income families that, that will pay with, with um, SNAP. SNAP and so forth. Yeah, we've done that. We've rolled it out uh, last spring. We rolled it out at the, at the time, if you recall, when we were having problems with, with SNAP being, uh, uh, they were changing some of the rules about SNAP and what equipment you could use, <laughs> which was really crazy. And they also put us through refiling, which meant we lost about, oh, a good four or five months in the season being able to use SNAP. However, our social investment fund, uh, we had a great response. We had some 160 people who responded in terms of, in terms of our, our, our shareholders. And this year, we think it's going to be much richer and much fuller. Wow. So that's what I wanted to know is how did it go? Because, you know, it's really interesting. You're so specific um, in calling out how people should self-identify into the greater means category that would be one of those 160. You know, you say, if you have investments, if you have inherited money, if you travel recreationally, if you have access to family resources in times of need, you know, these simple kind of barometer questions that help us kind of place ourselves and recognize that we are in a position that 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 needs to be on the funding side. Um, so it's it's exciting to hear that people did respond to that and that, that it looks like your prospect is that that will grow. Uh, I would also want to add that, you know, this whole issue of funding really begins with uh, the group that put up the equity to start Corbin Hill. Uh, we were not, you know, we were, in our community, we know what the issues are. We can spend an enormous amount of time intellectualizing about it, writing about it, talking about it, and doing nothing about it. But we were able, I was able to get 10 other investors to come to the table and simply say, look, the food that we are going to be distributing will be going to low-income folks. I can tell you in advance, 
we're going to barely make any money. So let's get a legal structure that helps us, an LLC, and then spin off a not-for-profit later on that did all the operations. But essentially, we had 11 people who looked like the community. I mean, you say 71% of the folks who participated were black and Latinx. 64% of them were immigrants. I have to be careful because one, uh, two are from Puerto Rico, and they are not immigrants, but they, we call them that given after, the, after the, how they've been treated. They might as well be treated as immigrants. And so we ended up with 51% also being women. And so the whole idea of what this investment group looked like in the community 10 years ago, 11 years ago, was almost unheard of in terms of put, folks putting up that kind of equity to get something started. We essentially gave up on all the power dynamics of, the, of dealing with the philanthropic community because for them, we were just kind of like, uh, you know, 11 folks who want to do good, but they don't know anything about food. But what we did know is we did know our community connections. And that is something they could not measure in terms of our social, uh, our social capital within our community. And I and I and I know that you're you know really highlighting this, and I appreciate you raising it because you don't believe that all money is created equal. Like you're very very conscientious about who you take money from, and and who you're saying no to. And I, I you know I know you mentioned last year that um, you know of of the total of seven hundred fifty thousand that had been invested in Corbin Hill, fifty one percent is from women, seventy one percent had come from people of color. Um, and I know that you even have turned down investment that that um, you t- felt didn't align with your values. How do you make those decisions about you know whether you will take funds that are offered? Well, you know, you have to ask yourself uh, who do you serve, and I think that's the more fundamental question. And you have to be very intentional about it. I would love to say I serve farm workers. I love to say I serve farmers, and I'd love to say I serve my community. The, the reality is. We're not equipped to serve farmers. We're not equipped to serve the farm workers. I think they need to be, and there are other groups who could do a much better job than us saying we want to work with those groups. Our intentionality really rests around communities, our communities within the five boroughs. And I think that's an important piece, so that when we got a grant for $350,000 from the state, to build a facility that's going to be a hub upstate, we asked ourselves, is this how we really want to go back into debt in order to pay, borrow another half a million dollars uh, to complete this uh, facility? Or is this, are these resources that we should be using to build our own community and to work with our own community? And so we turned those funds down. Really, really interesting. I mean, the importance of being laser focused on your, your key um, impact. So I, I want to move over to speaking with Olivia. I have a few more questions for you that I'd love to get to, but I, I want to bring Olivia Rebinal into this conversation um, and bring in a funder's perspective um, as, as quickly as I can. Olivia manages strategy, initiatives, and partnerships as director of inclusive food systems at Capital Impact Partners, which is a community development financial institution often referred to as a CDFI that has deployed over $2 billion to serve $2 billion to serve 5 million people in the sectors of healthcare, education, elder communities, healthy food, cooperatives, and affordable housing. And through programs like the California Freshworks Fund, the Michigan Good Food Fund, and the National Cooperative Grocer Fund, Capital Impact Partners increases access to affordable, healthy food, supports neighborhood retailers, and expands food distribution, processing, and production with a focus underscoring it all of racial and social equity. So welcome, Olivia. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Kiko. Thanks for having me. Can you start, you know, I'm going to repeat my for finance for dummies um, (laughs) framing. Help us understand the structure of Capital Impact Partners as a CDFI. Uh, What exactly is a CDFI for those of us who aren't familiar? And, you know, where does that fall in the realm of philanthropic or impact investing and everywhere in between? Right. Uh, CDFIs, Community Development Financial Institutions, are private organizations. Many of us are nonprofit financial organizations. 
that receive a CDFI certification from the U.S. Department of Treasury. We are tasked with deploying capital in underserved markets, and at its broadest definition, this means deploying capital into low and moderate income communities throughout the country. This comes in many different forms and formats. There are about 1,000 CDFIs nationwide. Some of them strictly do building affordable housing. Some of them finance small businesses in need in communities of color and low-income communities. Some of them focus on uh, facilities financing, so building health clinics in rural or urban centers that serve an underinsured and uninsured population. There are a a group, a cohort of CDFIs that finance uh, public education facilities, including public charter schools and other kinds of educational alternatives, especially in districts where uh, there are no quality educational opportunities. Um, And the space where I focus is really on um, building healthy communities through building more inclusive food systems. And where is the the money coming from that you deploy? Great question. Thank goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Don't sound too naive We have a variety of sources. Institutional investors and banks um, will support us with investments. So they could give us market rate or low rate capital to redeploy out into communities. Um, Many of them might get some credits for doing so um, per the um, Community Reinvestment Act. And so there is a, a great impetus and desire to work alongside CDFIs for those investors that have that uh, requirement. We also receive support from the federal government. We are regulated by Treasury, and the CDFI fund is a Department of Treasury that has appropriations typically every year, thankfully, that offers billions of dollars into the industry. And this is a flow from the federal government into the thousand CDFIs uh, that typically apply through competitive process for these federal grants. About 10 years ago, uh, under the Obama administration, uh, kind of uh, side-by-side with Michelle Obama's Let's Move campaign, there was an initiative to carve out dollars specifically for Healthy Food Financing Initiatives, or HFFI. Um, These dollars were to support specifically creating access to healthy, fresh, affordable foods in communities that did not have that access. Another way that CDFIs are receiving capital is through philanthropic sources. Foundations, large and small, community, regional, and national, have provided grants, as well as program-related investments, which are lower-cost sources of capital, or mission-driven investments, which are more market-rate investment tools, into CDFIs for the purposes of CDFIs Um, collaborating that capital and delivering it out under a social objective. And then the final way that I would say is that many CDFIs now are offering uh, retail opportunities so that investors can support CDFIs in amounts as large as, as small as $1,000 and upwards of that, and so can support our field through notes offerings such as we have. That's so interesting. And and listeners who are tuning in today can hear a little bit more about that second bucket from Leela Otis of the Bainham Family Foundation, who speaks to how they partner with CDFIs as a philanthropic um, foundation. So can I want to zoom in on the, the work you do in food, of course, Olivia, and the Fresh Food Fund, which Capital Impact Partners operates, I know in Michigan and California, maybe elsewhere, um, pairing financial assistance with technical assistance. Mm-hmm. What kind of organizations do you choose to invest in in those, in those ways? And, and how are you as a funder providing technical assistance? So we are currently the fund administrator of the Michigan Good Food Fund. It's a statewide initiative that we launched almost four years ago. It's a public-private partnership. And the sources of capital is from that litany of um, sources that I explained earlier. And we, with those sources of dollars, we have created a collaborative. At the crux, there is ourselves as the fund administrator and two key partners that are able to deliver technical assistance and advising and support capacity building to food entrepreneurs across the value chain. 
These two partners have spe different specialties and core competencies, which is why we um, were intentional about including them in this framework. Um, and since the, or the original formation of this collaborative, we have expanded our collaborative to now include eight partner organizations. This allows us to lend in amounts from 2,500 up to 6 million across five different lending partners um, because not one lender will specialize in that range of amounts. Also, with our technical assistance providers, we're able to bolster our financing with strategically aligned technical assistance, which comes in the form of one-on-one -on -one counseling, workshops and seminars, it, business intensives like three-day boot camps that specialize in food-specific concerns. We target a range of food enterprises across the value chain, and by that we mean from production to retailing and many points in between. So, so you said there are two complementary partners for capacity building. Mm -hmm. Can you share what those are? Yes. Just give us a better picture. Definitely. One of them is called Fair Food Network, based in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, they have been doing food, food um, enterprise development for a long while, and they have a specialty in cultivating and providing capacity building for smaller format or, and or community retail and small batch processing. Our other partner is Michigan State University's Center for Regional Food Systems. Um, they do oversee the statewide hub um, network, so they have access to the various hubs throughout the state. They also have um, critical connections to the processing and production communities. They also have institutes at, MS, at Michigan State University that offer supplemental support in the form of innovation counseling and product development. And, you know, why Michigan and California? You know, wh what does it take to make any particular regional market? And I'm, you know, curious specifically even from a D.C. perspective, mm -hmm. um, what, what does it take to facilitate these models? So in our instance, we are a national nonprofit organization with headquarters just outside of D.C. here in Arlington, Virginia. We also have offices in California, Oakland, California, where I am based, and in Detroit, Michigan. So with that footprint and that presence in community, we have developed initiatives to serve the needs of the market. Here in D.C., we have embarked on a, a community engagement process, which we began several years ago, I would say two, two and a half years ago now, meeting with stakeholders and community to understand the true needs of food entrepreneurs, and in particular, those food entrepreneurs that have his, been historically overlooked um, and underserved, and to understand what their capacity and capital needs are. We launched um, our community engagement with a convening last December, and we'll follow up with um, an exercise envisioning and, and establishing some social objectives around creating a more equitable and inclusive food system here in the district and how we can support that. Yeah, and, and you kind of got ahead of what I was going to start asking you about next, which is improving access to capital for those groups of in our community that have been overlooked. Eric Kessler, in the first episode in this series, um, talked about some studies that, that they've done that Arabella and, um, Advisors, his, his um, organization, has done to really pinpoint the the issue, the problem. Um, and I have similar information from a Morgan Stanley report I read recently about how, just, just about funder bias and mm -hmm. about how funders are twice as likely to think women and minority-owned businesses would perform below market average compared to those run by white men. Um, and it seems like programs such as yours are crucial to breaking down this type of implicit bias. Um, so I, can you tell us a little bit more about what you've done at Capital Impact Partners to lead the charge of, of reducing implicit bias and, and um, you know, finding investment that doesn't follow those patterns? Right. Well, this is um, a deep, longstanding concern that goes many, many years back of historical institutional discrimination that has resulted in a conflation of concerns in communities that we care about. So it is not a mistake that Ward 7 and 8 only have 
three supermarkets, whereas all the other wards per ward have at least five. And those districts, those wards also are experiencing higher levels of poverty, twice as high as the district at large, twice, twice the rates of diet-related diseases like diabetes and obesity. I think that this is also then juxtaposed with the historical racial wealth gap, which influences an ability of an entrepreneur to access credit. And so all of these societal, economic, and health factors are at play. And what we have realized is that it takes intentionality around the delivery of capacity and capital into these communities that will help us to begin to dismantle the barriers to to reaching the access to capital that we think we're providing. So the way that we think about doing this is in, in the example of the initiative that we are currently managing in Michigan, so we use a, a scorecard to help us measure our impact of any entrepreneur that comes our way. And we want to make sure that the enterprise is mission aligned with our social objectives. And those objectives include increasing healthy food access in low access communities, sparking economic opportunity and providing opportunities for employment with a real focus on racial and social equity. We also have priorities around environmental stewardship and local sourcing. So using a bit of a matrix, we measure any enterprise at how well they meet, they meet any one of those objectives. And based on that alignment, we then move forward with very con- concentrated technical technical assistance and financial assistance, a combination of both when necessary. That's helpful. That that's the kind of um, you know tool that I'm that I'm trying to kind of hear about. How do you make sure that all kinds of people are sharing their investment opportunities with you? Um, you know, because part of implicit bias is just that you know we 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 know who we know, and mm-hmm. you know people are more likely to mm-hmm. invest in someone who might look like themselves or come from a similar background. But most importantly, you know. How do you make sure that you that you consider mm-hmm. um, opportunities that that might not be within your networks? Right, and that's a great question. Um, we are, we try to be as intentional as possible with our outreach and engagement, so that we are understanding the needs in community. For example, in the statewide initiative, we have focused in on three or four communities of highest need, which also happen to be mostly majority communities of color and communities that have higher rates of poverty and diet-related diseases. In the same way, in any other uh, region, we would also look to focus on communities where we feel like the needs are highest. Dennis, I, I want to ask you kind of a related question, but before I do, you know, is there anything that you want to react to that Olivia has said? It's hard because I can't see your face, but um, anything uh, that you want to add? Yeah, I, 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 I really appreciate and understand what CDFIs have done, and I understand the history in terms of what limited impact they've really had in terms of uh, our black communities. I think one of, one of the trends in the future is, will be models like the Ujima Project in Boston, uh, a piece that we're also doing now called the Black Farmers Fund, in which we are thinking, and first of all, these are funds that, are, that originate within the community. It, 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 there's no amount of dollars small enough that you can invest. So that for community residents, we have a minimum is $50 and they get a higher interest rate than the person who puts in $5,000. And so I think one has to rethink, where does the community fit into all of this? Because part of it all, to me, is the fact that if communities don't own any of these things, they're really only listened to, uh, but they don't, they're not part of the decision-making piece because we have to shift where the decisions are going to be made. And too often the engagement process and the listening process does not involve necessarily an outcome that speaks to uh, the fact that there's a shifting of power in the decision-making process. Dennis, thank you for that. I appreciate the comments um, and wanted to share a little bit more about our organization and our history. 
Capital Impact Partners was born out of and created by the National Cooperative Bank. And as such, although we are now separate, completely organizations, uh, we, our organization retains a commitment and focus on a cooperative, the cooperative movement and de developing cooperatives. Okay. Uh, so we do that in a few different ways because we believe that the cooperative model is one that will promote economic justice. Um, one example of um, shifting the power and authority in financial decision making is uh, a new financial credit cooperative union, a black-led financial cooperative in Minneapolis that we were able to support through a cooperative innovation award last year. Um, it's called the Village Trust Financial Cooperative. And that's an example of, I think, our organization using our capacity and capital to then f catalyze uh, community-driven solutions. Um, I think that there is still much more to be done in shifting the dynamics of, of power and decision-making, and I very much agree with you. Um, and we are trying to take steps to supporting those initiatives. As you know, you're, you're talking about community ownership, both of you, and I want to ask you both about um, you know, various structures or models that exist. Um, for example, Dennis, you lead a nonprofit, and then there's there are co-ops that you know have. Olivia, you just mentioned a co-op structure where joint ownership is baked in. And as consumers, a lot of us are are um, familiar with co-ops as a retail model, whether it's you know a bakery and. Arizmendi Bakery in the Bay Area was the first that I um, fell in love with, or you know, grocery co-ops like one called Glut here in Mount Rainier, or um, a food delivery co-op that's being um, launched soon in Southeast DC called South Eats. What other structures would you each shine a light on that prioritize mutual ownership and equity of participation in their DNA? We continue to support the cooperative structure, especially for worker-owner cooperatives, where workers can be the owners to make the own, their own business decisions and share in the profits and the wealth creation of a business entity. Um, we have just completed, actually, a, a report on the, um, the market um, demand for worker-owned co-ops in, in particular segments, notably in home care. There are home care cooperatives that um, are really able to bring profit back to a historically low-wage um, industry and an industry where most of the jobs are, are held by people of color. Um, and there are some other subsectors where we see some real opportunity for worker ownership. We're also using cooperative worker ownership as a model to retain legacy businesses, businesses that have been around for a long time and are at risk of closing or being absorbed by a very large corporate entity. And instead of doing so, we are providing support so that technical assistance can be provided to these legacy businesses that are considering conversion to worker ownership. Dennis, would you add anything there? No, I, I, I would... I would agree with what's being said. I think I would structure it slightly differently, and that is many of us in the black community are looking at an alternative economy in terms of uh, how we think of the economy that has not worked for us and how we can create a different kind of economy and co-ops and ESOPs and all of these things fall into that particular uh, category. I think what, it, what, the, what we're struggling with is the fact that capitalism is there to stay. And so much of what we're trying to do is try to find ourselves in terms of how do we keep one foot in terms of the alternative economy, an alternative economy, and at the same time begin to utilize that which sits in the regular economy, the tools that are there that can help us function and work better. And that's a tricky piece. Yeah, and, it, it, you know, what you're saying is, is, is so deeply um, kind of at the base of what we're talking about because it reminds me of something else that you um, spoke about when you presented last year, which is the way that the, the language used in seeking investment support 
is, is, you know, just as important sometimes as the substance of the work in terms of whether investment follows. Um, and, and, you know, you've been really raising up examples of how Corbin Hill sources investment from the community. Um, and, you know, you talked about your initial investors. Um, and <clears throat> But at the same time, you talked that day about um, working with the Kellogg Foundation and how someone there named Linda Joe Doctor helped you kind of shape proposal language. So I, I feel like they're kind of similar in the sense that we're talking about like community grassroots support versus you know outside support um, and and appealing to people who may not know you and the work and the community as well. What have you learned um, from your experience with Kellogg with others that has affected the way that you talk about Corbin Hill or seek funding support or other um, other support? Well. Uh, the very attractiveness 10 years ago is when we, we were talking about sovereignty and giving ownership to community. That was a, 10 years ago, that was not something that a group of uh, investors would put as number one on the table. Right. Okay? So that got everybody's attention. They're either, either crazy or we have to stick around and see what they're going to do. So it took another three or four years in terms of our own performance before, they, before folks started to support us. And by then we spun off the, the not-for-profit. So what we, what we learned is the fact that it's a hard road to go and a steep hill to climb to get the regular funders on board with what is a new idea that 10 years becomes something that everybody's talking about. And that I have learned, it takes an enormous amount of patience. You have to accept the 100 no's uh, that, you, that you will get and not take it personally. Just simply say they're not ready for the idea. And so you, don't, you haven't instead learned to kind of be a chameleon and package in a different way, knowing that, you know, there are biases against new ideas or, you know, yet unproven ones? Well, let, let, me, let me put it this way. It's not that easy. We're at this stage right now where we're looking for funding so that we, could write a, we can run a community process in terms of their, their deciding what the farm should be and they're deciding the rules of governance, et cetera, so that they own all those decisions. That's a process that's very complicated. It's going to take 18 months to do this. Just asking for the funds for it, we have yet to get somebody who says, hmm, I'm not sure if I, this is all going to work, but I'm willing to take the risk. I'm, and so, you know, all of the measures that they would be looking for, it's not easy to fill. And I'm, it's going to take somebody with a vision and a, who's daring and is not caught up in a set of rules to simply say, they were crazy once, maybe they can be crazy twice. I think for our work at Capital Impact, uh, for creating equity-facing community-engaged initiatives and programming, we have relied on the support and generosity of a subsidy through organizations like the Kellogg Foundation to support the work because it does take intentionality and time to create initiatives that are intentional about reaching the population we intend to serve. And I know there is a difference between an initiative that's coming from the outside rather than from within. But with the intentionality around the work that we do, it does take time and the results are not immediate. And so I give credit to those risk takers and innovators that provide us with that financial support and time. That makes sense. Dennis, any, any last thoughts before we move on to our our lunch agenda action items for listeners? Uh, no, no last thought. Okay. Well, so then why don't you kick us off, Dennis? I always ask my guests okay. for one right. thing that listeners can do in our day-to-day to improve the food system in any way you feel, you know, we have the power to improve it. Uh, it's something that I've learned from day one in working in this arena. Listen to the community voices they really and truly know what they need and want and will design it for you. And us experts should actually shift that decision making to the community. 
What if we're not a leader? What if we are a member of the community? What do you want us to do then? Uh, if you're a member of the community, I want you to be part of that group that owns the food system so that when we set up a program that simply says you, you donate $5 every two months, that you want to do it because you own a piece of it. That's what I want you to do. We know that disproportionately that, uh, that for black folks or black communities, they give a higher percentage uh, in terms of their income to charity than those who are middle class or wealthy. And so letting them see that within the context of their owning the food system within the community with their very small contributions that can build a new entities that they own, I think is important. And we don't think of these small, we think always in terms of the large foundations and the large grants, which are always helpful. But that's like, you know, here today and gone tomorrow. Our communities are going to be here for a long, long time. Yeah, it's, it's more like the, the Bernie Sanders campaign fundraising model of more donors, less investment each donor is, is you know, his approach. Didn't realize that. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's really powerful, Dennis. I, that, 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 um, that's, that's really powerful. That's, there's a lot to think about there. Olivia, what about you? Well, I come at this work um, in my profession uh, from a place of privilege, and I acknowledge that. I work for an institution that has called itself historically a financial nonprofit institution. And so what I would say to my peers is th that we can recognize that the food economy is a, a ripe opportunity to advance inclusion and equity because it is able to have so many social posi positive social outcomes, including not only improving access to healthy food in communities that need it, but also creating opportunity within the food economy, especially for those that historically have not been able to participate and prosper from the food economy. So I would ask those to, in these positions of privilege and power and authority and decision-making to actively and intentionally seek out opportunities in communities of color for investment especially for food entrepreneurs. Dennis, if listeners want to get involved with Corbin Hill's journey, you know, whether they're in the New York market or not, what, how can they get involved? How can we get involved? Uh, well, we're beginning, we're beginning to launch a campaign in the next, uh, within the next three months around very small donations that begin with the community. And we will probably have two types of investors, a community investor and what we would call, we haven't given it a name yet, uh, someone in the, from outside of the community who wants to continue to support. Uh, we're going to be looking for very small donations. As a matter of fact, one of the things we're debating right now is for anybody who gives a large donation, they'll probably have to give it anonymously because we just don't want that power relationship to exist within the community, wow. thinking that they have to respond to someone. Wow. Okay, so, so where can we look out for the launch of that campaign? Uh, it, will be, it will be on our website in the newsletter. Okay. And it will be uh, in the next three, three months, I would think. CorbinHillFoodProject.org? Okay. You've got it. Okay. And Corbin Hill can also be found on Instagram, Corbin Hill underscore food project, or sorry, yeah, Corbin Hill underscore food project, and then at Corbin Hill NYC on Twitter. Olivia, you're at Capital Impact on Twitter. Are you all on Instagram? People want to follow, you know, the work in Michigan, California, as it grows maybe in, in presence in the Washington area? Not on Instagram, okay. to my knowledge. Okay. Twitter. Uh, I really appreciate you both being here, Dennis virtually, Olivia with me in the studio today. Um, for all the specific examples you gave of, of your respective work, um, and I, I am coming away with um, definitely new kind of perspectives on how marginalized borrowers are accessing capital in our communities and how leaders, whether, you know, nonprofit leaders like you, Dennis, or leaders in the fund funding side of things are consciously driving towards a food system that, you know, we want to see that it's not yet our reality. 
I also, as this is the last episode of the series that's that's co-produced by the Bainham Family Foundation, I really want to thank the team there for adding to my learning by being my first co-producing partner. Um, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't honestly have known about you, Olivia, not not knowing you in D.C. And they just really deepened my knowledge of of this space, of this food investment space. Thanks to all of you listeners who have who have joined us in the series and been curious about the the difficult topics we've been tackling. I'm I'll be back next month to kick off a new series on Lunch Agenda all about institutional food. So, you know, we'll be looking at hospitals and hotels and we're going to do I think a few episodes about prison food because that it turns out mm-hmm. I don't think I can even tackle in one episode. Um, you know, we're going to be talking about the how the decisions of the people who provide food in those institutions affect their residents and um, the impact of those choices. So I hope you'll join me. I think it's going to be fascinating. Um, and Dennis, thanks again. And Olivia, thank you for being with us today. Great. Thank you so much thank for you. having me, Kiko. Yeah. Um, the, again, this is Kiko Bourne. You've tuned into Lunch Agenda. Thanks, everyone, for, for sticking with us today. And being along this journey with us, and I'll talk to you soon. Have a great one.